is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It's the basis of the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on October 22nd, 2023. It's part of our series called Hunt the Good Stuff, which is a series about uh, developing the tools for living a life of gratitude. Let's hear the text first. This is from Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 in the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is a rich passage of scripture, as are so many within the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to be just looking at the first two verses to begin with, and we're going to focus on the object of gratitude, the object of gratitude. Now, we have to set up Paul's letter to this divided Roman church first. Why is Paul even writing this letter to begin with? Well, the Roman church uh, has an interesting story that at its outset and beginning, it was dominantly made up of Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians were part of a small community uh, who believed in Jesus as their Messiah. In about 69 or 70 uh, AD, Emperor Nero, uh, uh, there was a fire in Rome, and Emperor Nero essentially ordered all of the Jews and even some small numbers of Christians out of the city of Rome, forced them into exile. And so these uh, Jewish Christians fled. We know from reading other books in uh, the New Testament that many of these Jewish Christians from Rome settled in other places, and Paul addresses them in some of his other letters. Well, during this time the Jewish Christians were gone, the church in Rome was essentially then comprised of Gentile Christians, and they began to develop and mature over time into a robust community. After Emperor Nero's death, many of these Jewish Christians that had originally been part of the Roman church then returned, only to find that the church that they left behind is now led and governed by Gentile converts to Christianity. And so there's all these disagreements between these two communities, both the Jewish and Gentile community, who are both Christians, about the nature of the Jewish law, whether they should keep that law, what their state and being was according to the Jewish law and prophecy. And Paul's letter to the Romans is designed to address that. In the first four chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is focused on uh, establishing a doctrine of justification by faith. He starts out in the early chapters of Romans uh, setting the stage by talking about the universal nature of sin that afflicts all of humankind, both Jew and Gentile. 
And then he begins to talk about how justification by faith works through Jesus's act on the cross and uses uh, Abraham as a wonderful example of how that justification by faith works. So this idea of being justified with God, in other words, made right with God by faith, is the foundational core of Paul's theology. And so verse 1 begins with, therefore, having been justified by faith. So Paul's already built his basis around this, so he's making an affirmation in verse 1 that this is what I've just finished talking to you all about in this letter. The grammar here is always interesting because Paul uses the perfect tense, having been justified by faith. It's a, a past action that is complete. So justification by faith or being justified by faith, this is the acceptance of what God has done. Faith is the agent by which we receive it. In other words, it's the the way in which that justification becomes real to us. This has to do with the example he used of Abraham's obedience to God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the justification by faith. So the result of this justification by faith has a very particular characteristic in verse 1. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this verse here is not without disagreement among scholars where it says we have peace with God. The way the New American Standard uh, translators translate it, of course, is we have peace. That's what I've just read. And so the way they translate it is that this is a state of being, that this state of being of peace is because of the justification by faith. Other ways to translate this, and you'll find this in other translations of this text into English, it will say something like, let us have peace. It's an encouragement in some ways in verse 1 with that kind of translation that we need to practice an acceptance of that state of being. Whereas the New American Standard Bible says we have peace, imagine how it might be different in other translations that say let us have peace. It's almost like a form of encouragement to have peace. Now the peace here is the first effect of justification by faith. It is not sentimental. It has to do with being in an objective state with God, that our hostility with God has ended. Now, that language I'm using is very particular, and it probably uh, reveals a little bit about what some would describe as my atonement theology, and it is that our hostility with God has ended. And so if that's the case, then that helps us understand that the peace that we experience is peace in our relationship with God. And then Paul goes on and he says the second effect of that justification by faith is that we've been, uh, that we've had an, uh, an introduction by faith into this grace as he goes on in verse two, through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace. So it's through Jesus that we've obtained this introduction. We only have this standing because of what Jesus has done. And it's what we stand on. Grace is the gift of God. It is God's act toward us when we did not earn or deserve it at all. So now we can celebrate this gift of God. 
we can celebrate this hope as Paul continues. He makes it clear in verse 2 that Jesus is the means by which we've obtained this introduction by faith into this grace. We've received this gift from God in which we stand, and then he concludes verse 2, and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. This celebration or this praise or this giving thanks all point to God. And this is key for Paul when he's talking about justification by faith. That this saving act of God in Jesus Christ is fully and completely God's. It is not ours. Now, what is at stake is our choice to receive it by faith. But we have to be clear. Faith does not do the work of justification. Faith is how we accept it. And that's the key passageway for us here. That saving grace is just that. It's grace. You know, the, the founder of the Methodist movement, a man named John Wesley, was originally very much moved by Martin Luther's interpretation of some of these very verses. On May 24th, 1738, John Wesley had gone to a study on Aldersgate Street in London where they were reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on this book from the Bible, Romans. And in that preface, Luther addresses directly this notion of being justified by faith and what he described in Latin as sola fide, the faith alone is what is at work in our lives. And it touched John Wesley deeply. He wrote in his journal that very night about how his life was changed and revolutionized by understanding not only in his head, but in his heart, what this meant for him. This meant freedom from the bonds of religious restriction and rules. For, for Wesley, his was a life of form searching for function. And this is true of religion in general, that religion is always in search of meaning rather than being meaning in and of itself. Our journey is very much like this. What's at stake is not what we need to do for God, but rather our acceptance of what God has done for us. To The experience of faith is our assent. It's our cooperation with what God has done. And so when we refuse it, is to resist the very work and movement of God in the world. God is working toward redemption, toward love, toward this embrace of this gift that's been given. And so when we refuse it, it's to resist that work that God is seeking to do in the world. And for we, uh, we as people called Methodists, our theology is grounded in the fact that God is at work through grace to do everything possible for us to receive this gift except for forcing it upon us. In all of this, we celebrate God's work, not our own. Faith is really all we had. God holds everything else. Thus, when we talk about salvation or saving grace, there's really no praise directed toward our keen insight of accepting God's gift. It really is all about God. In the closing few verses, uh, we find in verses 3 to 5, now the fruit of this gratitude that's at work within us. Paul now turns from our praise and gratitude directed toward God 
to the fruit of that gratitude in our life. So in other words, if we know the gift comes from God that we're justified by faith, then how does that express itself in our life? And how does it, what's it look like in terms of how we celebrate that gift that God has given to us? And so he says in verse three, well, before verse three, at the end of verse two, he says, we celebrate the hope of the glory of God. And then in verse three, and not only this, but we also celebrate. And then here's where the text takes a strange turn for us. He says, we celebrate in our tribulations. Now, the the Jews who had been part of this Roman Christian community that had been forced into exile by Emperor Nero and have now returned to Rome, they knew these tribulations well. They knew what it was like to be afflicted, to be sent into exile and return. So Paul is saying that not only they, but the Gentiles as well should celebrate in their tribulations. Well, why in the world would they do this? Well, part of it is that they now see things in a broader frame. What really matters, what really matters, and this is what Paul's talked about in the first two verses of chapter 5, what really matters is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Everything else now settles into perspective. When we experience tribulations, we now experience them as Christ experienced his own tribulations. And tribulations, when they're experienced, they bring about perseverance. In many ways, what Paul's suggesting here is it's about conditioning and capacity. You know, tribulation is not necessarily sent from God. I mean, Nero was not doing God's will at that particular moment in time. Tribulation is not necessarily sent from God. For the Christian, tribulation develops our ability to stand with God. It's the way in which we're strengthened in those moments. And then Paul goes on to say that that perseverance then brings about character. That word for character in Greek means to be proven by trial. In other words, you've uh, been vindicated in some way that it's it's not just an abstract, it's a true condition of who we are because we've been through an experience in which we've been vindicated. And this is who we really are when we're stripped down, uh, if you will, with some of our kind of pretense and presentation, uh, even in moments of suffering. This is the part of who we are that remains. So in some sense, who we really are is most seen in those moments of suffering. That's the proven by trial part. Then he goes on to say that that proven character, remember character is that which is proven by trial, brings about hope. Now the word hope in the New Testament is the Greek word elpis, and it means expectation. So hope in the New Testament is not a word about wishfulness or dreaminess or longing. It is about the expectation of an outcome. Jesus's own death and resurrection are evidence. He had a hope, in other words, his expectation of the outcome. He didn't hope God would resurrect him, but he did expect it to happen to the point at which he's talked about it extensively before his death and resurrection. And then after his death and resurrection, he pointed back to the fact that he told his disciples about his death and resurrection. So proven character brings about hope, and that word for hope means expectation. And hope, expectation, Paul then says, as he 
moves through verse 5, he begins to explain that that hope does not disappoint. This is not a trick of some kind. Why? Because he tells us that the love of God has been poured out. It says in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. It's important to take note that this is the first time in the book of Romans where Paul has mentioned the love of God. And God has poured this out into our hearts. This is not about our emotions. This is about the seed of our action, a seed of our will, I mean, our actions through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. So God's gift continues. It's not just saving grace only. It's sanctifying grace. It's the grace of God that's at work within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we connect with the Holy Spirit, when we recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, deepening the way in which we experience the love of God, this is all built upon this very process Paul is talking about, that we celebrate in tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. This is a key passageway for us. Gratitude always remains since God is the one at work. From the beginning of this process to the end, in terms of our spiritual life and our, and our faith formation, God is the one who's at work. So when confronting challenging times, uh, at least for us in our Western culture, uh, that culture would tell us to summon our will, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, to, to get at it. But for many of us, this is kind of a, a, a shaky, a frightened, and a, a broken condition for us. There are no straps on boots to pull up, if you will. So facing difficulties and crises has to be more than just powering through it. And when we do that, there's a failure there to give God his place in all these things. Because of Jesus's act for us and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us, we face all of these moments in life differently. There's a God at work in all of it, and we serve a God who redeems our pain. So regardless of the outcome of a situation, we are confident that there are some unshakable things that are always at work. And we are confident that God loves us. And that is sometimes the only thing we can point to that God loves us. So even in the most desperate and challenging moments in our life, we should still be able to give thanks for God's grace and love above all else. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com, and click on News in the upper right-hand corner. Then you'll see a drop-down menu that says Podcasts. Click on that, and then click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I also, invisit, also invite you to visit our church's website at ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.